We're taking a break from our Genesis sermon series for this Sunday, Palm Sunday, and next Sunday, which will be Easter. Then we'll get back into Genesis. But today we're in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What is the natural human instinct when trouble hits life? When trouble hits, the natural instinct is to find someone to get you out of the trouble. We see it in our culture. We see it in business. When a, when a business starts to fail or crumble and the CEO resigns, what do they do? They search for the next CEO, right? The next leader that's going to get them back on track. Or when a college football team or a professional football team starts losing and, and the coach gets fired, and what do they do? They look for the next coach, the next leader that's going to get them back to the glory days. When a pandemic hits, what do we do? We look for someone to get us out of the trouble. And that's why in this time, you won't find any shortage of articles that point the finger at failure of leadership in what's happening. You also won't find a shortage of articles that tell about people who have followed unwise counsel from leaders during this trouble. Let me give you a few examples. An Okeechobee County Commissioner in Florida suggested during a March 20 County Commission meeting that breathing hot air from an air dryer, a hair dryer, would be a cure for the coronavirus. He quickly apologized on social media, made a public apology, and said that he would never make such a suggestion again unless it were tried or true. Or 
on Facebook Messenger, a video recently promoted drinking hot lemon juice, that that would be a prevention or a cure for the coronavirus. Health officials quickly debunked that. Or this one, it's the most tragic story. Several weeks ago, an Arizona man died and his wife was hospitalized after they ingested or drank chloroquine, which had been trumpeted by the president a couple days earlier as a possible game changer in the cure for the coronavirus. So they looked at their aquarium cleaner for their fish tank and saw chloroquine on it and they drank it. Now that's a tragic story, but it's just evidence of how desperate we are to look to someone to lead us out of this trouble. That we're desperate for a king of sorts who will lead us out of this trouble. The question is, what kind of king do we need to lead us through troubled times? In John chapter 12, we find God's people in trouble and looking for someone to lead them out of that trouble. So who is the king? What kind of king do we need to lead us through troubled times? First, a king of peace. A king of peace. What kind of king were the crowds looking for? in this triumphal entry. There were actually two crowds gathered around Jesus. You had the crowd that had gone to Bethany, and Bethany was where Mary and Martha were, and where Lazarus was, who Jesus had raised from the dead. They had gone out, and they followed now Jesus into Jerusalem for his entry. You also had the crowds that were in Jerusalem for the Passover feast that heard Jesus was coming, and so they went out to meet him. So you have these crowds that are rallying towards Jesus. The question is, why? Why are they rallying towards Jesus? Well, there's two clues that emerge from verse 13. First, note their cry. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That word Hosanna means save us now. Well, what did they need to be saved from? What was the trouble they needed to be saved from? The answer is found in the palm branches. We see in verse 13 that they're waving palm branches. Question is why? Well, palm branches were a part of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was an annual feast for the Jews, but they had become so much more. In the several centuries leading up to this point, palm branches had become a national symbol. In fact, years earlier, when Simon Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of Israel, they celebrated him with music and with waving palm branches. That palm branches had become this sign of victory and they pointed to a, a liberator who would free them from oppression. So what we see here is that the palm branches are an indicator that the crowds are looking to Jesus to liberate them from the oppression of Rome, to liberate them from being under the control of the Roman government. They saw Jesus as this really powerful, political freedom fighter. And the crowds at this point were in a frenzy. A frenzy. Imagine if you go to a show, a concert, and you're waiting for the 
the star, the rock star to come out on stage and the crowd starts to chant and they start to cheer and it's, and it's, it's escalating to this loud anticipation and then imagine if out comes someone but it's not the rock star. It's someone that nobody knows. And so the crowd instantly goes silent and they stop cheering and they stop chanting and there's this, this big letdown. Well, that's exactly what happened when Jesus does what he does in verse 14. The wind comes out of the sails for the crowds. In verse 14, we read, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, why was this such a letdown? Well, this is a quote from Zechariah 9.9. The prophet Zechariah explains the significance of Jesus riding in on a donkey. He says this, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Christ, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. See, the crowds expected Jesus to mount a war horse. They expected Jesus to mount a war horse and to go to war against Rome and to free them from control of Rome and from these unfavorable circumstances they found themselves in. When Jesus mounted the donkey, he was making a loud statement that he was coming to bring a different kind of freedom, that he was coming to bring a different kind of peace. And what kind of freedom was he coming to bring? Well, Zechariah says it. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Zechariah was talking about freedom from sin. Jesus mounted a donkey, an animal of peace, not a war horse, to announce that he was coming to set his people free from sin and idolatry and to bring peace to the turmoil in their hearts. What do we learn from this? We learn that Jesus doesn't primarily go to war against your circumstances. That Jesus goes to battle, goes to war against the sin and the idolatry in your heart. And the circumstances serve to highlight that sin and to highlight that idolatry, to highlight the problems within your heart. Think about a CT scan that they do to examine inside your body. Oftentimes, prior to a CT scan, they will inject a contrast dye into you through an IV. And the point of the contrast dye 
is to make your organs or your blood vessels or your tissues, some form, stand out so that they can see where the injury or the disease or the problem is. Circumstances are like the contrast dye in a CT scan. They highlight where the problems are. They highlight the sin. They highlight the idolatry so that as Jesus goes to work on that, you can cooperate with him to go to work on that. And as they highlight idolatry, oftentimes that is accompanied or idols are seen or evidenced by emotions of anger, of frustration, of irritability, of fear, of anxiety that reveal that you're trusting in something other than Christ, whether it be approval or comfort or control or security. Imagine if that contrast dye were removed or weren't injected, right? The, the, the problem would never be highlighted. When we see Jesus as the one who will just get rid of our bad circumstances, or when we primarily ask him to get rid of our bad circumstances, we're, we're asking him to get rid of potentially what's highlighting the deeper problem in our hearts. If your primary prayer and your primary focus in this pandemic is to get rid of the pandemic, then it's possible you're falling into the same place as the crowds in John 12 that are looking to Jesus to just get you free from the circumstance. And that's like removing the contrast eye. Circumstances reveal false gods. They reveal idols so that you can see them. And as Jesus works on them, he can free you from them because they only oppress and they only take away life. That's why I love Paul's prayers. Paul's prayers in the New Testament are amazing. He's writing to churches who are undergoing massive persecution. He's writing to churches uh, where there are families that are being thrown in prison by civil magistrates and, and being threatened with death. And yet what he prays for them, you'll see there are never a mention of circumstances. In fact, an example of this would be Ephesians 3. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inmost being. Right? What Paul doesn't pray is, I'm praying that the civil magistrates don't take you to prison. You'll never see that. Or a, a, Paul, a prayer request that Paul asks for himself, asks the churches to pray for him in Ephesians 6. He says, make supplication or pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is in prison when he writes this. Paul is in the ultimate quarantine. And he doesn't pray about those circumstances or that Jesus would release him from those bad circumstances or from prison or from the quarantine, he prays for his character within those circumstances. So here's the question. What problem, what idol, or what sin 
has the coronavirus highlighted or revealed in your heart? Are you working with Jesus to get free from that idol? Or are you working against Jesus to try to get rid of the circumstance? Are your prayers circumstance-focused? Or are they heart and character-focused? What kind of king do you need to lead you out of troubled times? You need a king of peace. King Jesus, who who doesn't war against your circumstances primarily, but who goes to war against the sin and idols in your heart so that he can bring peace to the turmoil in your heart. You need a king of peace, but second, you need a king of power. Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. There are signs throughout the Gospel of John, and these signs reveal who Jesus is. And this was one of those signs when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It's recorded in John 11. Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus was ill, so they sent word to Jesus that their brother was ill. And it says that Jesus waited two days. Two days until he came. Why did he wait? Well, he was about to reveal his power in a profound way. By the time he gets to Lazarus, Lazarus had been dead for four days. There was no doubt that he was dead. He had been in the tomb for four days, and Jesus stands in front of the tomb. They roll the stone away, and Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walks out of that tomb. Jesus didn't go into the tomb and perform CPR on Lazarus. He didn't go into the tomb and even pick Lazarus up and carry him out. He simply spoke the word, and death released its grip on Lazarus. Now that's power. And the point of that sign is to reveal that Jesus Christ has authority over death itself. Now don't you think that if Jesus has authority over death, then he also has authority over those things that cause death? What that means is that King Jesus is sovereign over every square inch of this world. He is sovereign over every cell, over every molecule, and yes, over the microscopic coronavirus. We as a nation are at war a very different war than we've ever faced, that war with a microscopic virus that we can't see with the visible eye or the naked eye. But what is invisible to us is not invisible to sovereign King Jesus. Nothing 
Nothing is outside of his control. Now, this raises two questions. If that's the nature of Jesus' power, first question, how does he use it? Second question, what are the implications of his power on our lives? So let's start with the first question. How does Jesus use his power? Well, starting in verse 20, we see that a bunch of Greeks, which were non-Jews, had come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And they go to Philip, who was one of Jesus' disciples, and they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Jesus goes and gets, or Philip goes and gets Andrew. They go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, there's some people that want to see you. And note how Jesus responds in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus was describing his impending death, which would happen a week later. That he, like a grain of wheat falling to the ground and bearing fruit, that he would die and bear much fruit, which would be the saving of many. All-powerful, Sovereign King Jesus laid down his life, used his power to lay down his life to save many. There's that amazing scene in the Garden of Gethsemane when they are coming to arrest Jesus and they, they finally get their hands on Jesus and they seize him and Peter pulls his sword out and he chops off one of the ears of the high priest's servant. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that I could have asked my father to send 12 legions of angels to protect me? Jesus was in absolute 100% control at his arrest. He was in absolute control when he got beat. He was in absolute control when he hung on the cross. He was in absolute control when he breathed his last and died. He says it himself in John 10, 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus used his power to lay down his life, to save many. If you travel up 395 through Washington, D.C., and you cross over the Potomac River, you would cross over a bridge that's named the Arlen D. Williams Jr. Memorial Bridge. Now, who was Arlen Williams? Well, on January 13th, 1982, Air Florida Flight 90 took off out of D.C. and quickly crashed, had ice on the wings, it plunged into the Potomac River, almost every passenger perished, helicopter came overhead and dropped the rope to Arlen Williams five times. 
And each of those five times that the rope dropped to him, he passed it to somebody next to him who wasn't doing as well as he was. Those five people were rescued and were saved. They dropped the rope a sixth time, and he was too weak to hold on to it, and he plunged into the icy waters and died. Jesus died so that you could live. He used his power to lay down his life so that you could be saved. Now, what are the implications? What are the implications of his power on your life? You know, this is a a season that's hard with this pandemic. And I'm gonna speak into why it's hard because of what we naturally tend to do. But what I want you to see here is that after Jesus' unique death is described in verse 24, his unique death that saved many, then verse 25 picks up what the implications of his death are. Jesus says, whoever loses his life, loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Jesus is speaking here of an idolatrous focus on self. He's speaking here of self-preservation. And what we see is that self-preservation or self-focus is ultimately a denial of his kingship or a denial of his sovereignty. That if you aren't functionally trusting and submitting to Jesus, sovereign King Jesus who's in control, then your only choice is to go to self-rescue or self-preservation. As I mentioned earlier, we're, as a nation, at war with this microscopic virus that no one can see. Talk about an enemy that's stealth. Don't see it coming. If you don't believe that Christ is functionally sovereign over this virus, then you will by default descend into self-preservation. And that self-preservation takes on two extremes. And those two extremes have two very opposite behaviors. The one extreme is fear. The one extreme is fear. How am I going to save my life? No care of if other people perish, but how am I going to save my life? Or how am I going to save my business and come out unscathed without any care for people that lose their job? Or just how am I going to come out unscathed? Or or how am I going to save my bank account? or my investments, right? That's fear, that's one form of self-preservation. But the other extreme is what I would call a reckless attitude. And the reckless attitude is, no one's gonna infringe on my rights to move around. Or no one's gonna infringe on my rights to my comforts, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And oftentimes it's those that have a reckless attitude that kinda look down their nose at those who are fearful. 
But what I want you to see is that reckless attitude is just as selfish as being fearful. Because the reckless attitude says, hey, I'm young. If I get the virus, no big deal. I'll have a cold, maybe some symptoms, but I'll get over it. So I'm really not worried about getting it. Well, the problem is if you get it and you pass it on to somebody who's vulnerable, who could die from it, then there are grave consequences to that. If you're functionally submitted to sovereign and all-powerful King Jesus, then he empowers you to stop focusing on self and sacrificing for others. He empowers you to sacrifice your rights and your comforts in this season in order to love others well, who may be vulnerable. He empowers you to sacrifice your resources in this season, to love others well, to love those who are without a job or who get sick or who need help. We're at war, albeit a different kind of war than our nation has ever seen. But this is an opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to be a beacon of hope and a beacon of light in troubled times. Let's pray. Father, we confess our perspective in this time of seeing your son Jesus as the one who will just get us out of bad circumstances. And we fail to see that those circumstances, all kinds now produced by this pandemic, are the, the very things that are highlighting the deep sin and idolatry in our hearts that, Jesus, you're working on. Father, would you shift our focus? Would you shift our prayers from being primarily about circumstances or the removal of the pandemic to prayers that the, the sin and idolatry in our hearts would come to the surface and that we would cooperate with you, Jesus? and repenting and turning from those false gods. We confess, Jesus, that you are not only the king of peace, but you're the king of power. You're sovereign over every last square inch of this world. You're sovereign over this virus. Father, you have taken our suffering seriously because you placed all of our suffering on your son, Jesus when he hung on the cross and died to save many, if there are those viewing that have never placed their trust in Jesus, Father, I pray now that by the Holy Spirit, you would draw them to confess Christ and to submit to him and find a peace that passes all understanding. Father, would we be a people in this crisis that don't descend into fear, and that don't descend into reckless behavior, but that we would be a selfless people, responding to your power at work within our hearts to give ourselves away. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.